1: Welcome back to The Curbsiders. I'm Dr. Matthew Wato, trying to keep the energy up. It's it's late at night. <laughs> Paul's Paul's watching me. I'm always nervous. This is a great episode tonight, Paul. We talked with a fantastic guest uh, about COPD. This was a little bit of an update because we we'd done a COPD episode, but it was high time we had another COPD update. And our guest is Dr. Antonio Ansueto, and he was just lovely to talk to and had so many great pearls. Um, Paul, before we introduce our guests fully and our co-host, can you tell the audience, what is it that we do on The Curbsiders?
0: Happy to, as always, Matt. It feels like it's been a while. We are the Internal Medicine Podcast. We use expert interviews bring you clinical pearls and practice-changing knowledge. And as you alluded to, we have another co-host joining us, the producer extraordinaire, master pulmonologist, medical education whiz kid, Dr. Cyrus Askin. Cyrus, how are you? Oh, I'm doing great, Paul. How are you? good i'm great thank you so much for asking you know matt could have asked but he didn't
1: (laughs) cyrus i i heard you recently moved to el paso
0: uh matt you are correct
1: yeah el El paso paul i i spent a month there one night you remember that seinfeld (laughs) episode paul no Uh nothing kramer makes that joke yeah it's it's good
0: (laughs) oh gosh (laughs) <laughs> That's, I mean, you know, I get 99% of the Seinfeld jokes in that one. I can't
1: remember right the episode, me. but Kramer definitely makes the, uh, and then
0: he laughs like
1: way too hard. Um, so anyway, <laughs> I thought I'd give it a shot. Sorry, audience.
0: No, it's, I mean, you have almost the exact comic timing of Michael Richards. So I'm surprised <laughs> it didn't work out. But.
1: Okay. Sire, sorry to interrupt. Uh, please tell the audience, <laughs> what is it that, uh, we talked about on this episode and tell them about our guest.
2: You got it, Matt. So for this episode, we're very excited to host Dr. Antonio R. Ensueto. So Dr. Ansueto, he is a professor in pulmonary critical care at UT Health San Antonio. He's also chief of the pulmonary section for the South Texas Veterans Health Care System, the Audie Murphy Memorial Veterans Hospital, uh, where his additional responsibilities include medical director for the respiratory therapy department and medical director for the pulmonary function lab. In addition to all of this, Dr. Enzueto is a fellow of the European Respiratory Society, the American Thoracic Society, and is a longstanding member of the Gold Scientific Committee responsible for publishing the annual COPD guidelines followed by clinicians around the world. So it should come as no surprise to our audience that we had him on to talk about updates in COPD. And so really during this episode... We reviewed some of the long-established tenets of COPD management and discussed some updates since our last recording in 2018 with Dr. Denitza Blagev.
1: Cyrus, did you have a pun?
2: Matt, how did the beef brisket develop COPD?
1: I don't know, Cyrus. How?
2: Well, it's smoked for too long.
1: I I kind of like it, Paul. I kind of like it.
2: I tried. All right. (laughs)
1: <laughs> uh, I think I think I'm not gonna attempt any more puns after I fell oh. way flat on my face uh with my <laughs> El Paso joke, but uh I'll have to see if I can chase down that Seinfeld clip for the show notes. Um all right, let's get to it. A reminder that this and most episodes will be available for free CME credit for all healthcare professionals through VCU Health at curbsiders.vcuhealth.org. Let's get started. Antonio, we've been talking for a little while here. I'm really excited for the audience to hear all about COPD. But first, I think they just want to know a little bit about you. So they've heard your formal bio at this point, but can you tell them like a little bit about yourself and maybe a hobby or interest that you enjoy outside of
3: medicine? Well, first, thank you for inviting me. I think it's very excited to be, be here with you all. I had a really weird hobby. Since I was a kid, I memorized Airways, airlines timetables. So I know who (laughs) flies where. And now now these days, you know, with the internet, and when I need to go anywhere, I tell the travel agencies what I want. I already have plan B and C. Uh, If anything happens, I just go to the desk or I call the help desk and say, I need you to book on this flight, this flight, this flight, and this flight. This is what I need. So it's, uh, it's a weird hobby, but on the other hand, it's very handy when you have to travel and uh, sometimes they don't seem to me that many options for you to take. And internationally, it's very handy. I will ordinarily ask about like a book recommendation. I have to ask,
0: what transpired in your childhood <laughs> that you began memorizing airline tables? Like, I, can you just talk me through how this all started? Because I am, I am of course, fascinated.
3: Oh, when I was 15, 16 years old, I always loved aviation. And I love more of the, the airlines. I, the airlines are very similar to a hospital, it's very similar to healthcare. It really, the, for that plane to leave that gate requires hundreds of people to make it happen. It's like a hospital. You know, there's, there's an incredible coordination and everybody does their uh, jobs. So that's the reason I like it. Uh, and over time, I was fascinated to see how people will go places. I was fascinated to see how this has grown. As a matter of fact, I have predicted 80% of the bankruptcies, the merges, uh, I can be considered uh, a Wall Street airline analyst. I predict everything's going to happen. My wife already knows about it <laughs> from me. I get a couple of blogs every day. I read about airlines economics. So I, I know a lot about airlines.
1: Paul, should we pivot the show topic into airlines?
0: <laughs> 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 yeah. <laughs> start taking more aggressive notes. <laughs>
1: Oh, yeah. Let's, let's, all, let's all get into airline futures. Antonio, you're going to make us all rich. <laughs> well, uh, Cyrus, Cyrus the Younger, as we sometimes call you, uh, did you want to ask anything to Antonio? I know you, you both know each other professionally, but did you want to ask, now that you've got him on the hot seat here, did you want to ask him anything before we get into the topic?
2: Yeah, I, I kind of want to know about the next get-rich-quick scheme, I guess. But um, no, in, in actuality, um, I'm always looking for advice from peers and colleagues and mentors. So any meaningful or important advice, Antonio, that you received uh, at any point in your career that you'd be willing to pass on to us here?
3: I think the advice that I got from the person I started working with was keep your eyes open and be open mind. So I have a friend every time he sees me say, Antonio, when are you going to focus on something? You are like in COPD, you are in pneumonia, you are in sepsis, you are in mechanical ventilation, you are part of the Berlin Conference of ARDS, uh, you are everywhere it does. And it's like, you know, it's something, a lot of things are linked together, hypoxemia, respiratory failure. But my advice is have your eyes open. If anything you like, just go for it, you know, just go do it. And go for it. You've now been in El Paso. You're in a very unique situation. Uh, it probably will be uh, not as much support in certain areas in pulmonary. You know, pulmonary has grown tremendously. I don't know how much support you have in pulmonary hypertension or interstitial lung disease. But you say, well, I don't too much support about that. You know, I will be the expert on pulmonary hypertension. And you know have you become the director of the pulmonary hypertension clinic or the uh, pulmonary fibrosis clinic? You just name yourself. I'm the director of the pulmonary hypertension <laughs> clinic, and everybody will believe you after that. Man, now I'm, I'm so I'm ready
2: to take over the world. Now I'm ready to go.
1: Well, Cyrus, let's let's start to take over the COPD world because we need we need a case from Cashlack.
2: With pleasure, I think we can roll one roll one out for for Doctor Ansueto.
1: We're sponsored by Wild Grain. Were you one of those people who was trying to make bread during the pandemic? You know, you thought you were going to have your own sourdough starter, but uh, if you're like me, it was a non-starter Well, whichever you were, we can all agree that hot, delicious, fresh-baked bread is just one of the best things in the world. So why not try some from Wild Grain? It's the first bake-from-frozen box for artisanal bread, and they have amazing things like rolls, pastries, and even handmade pastas. My family tried all this, and we loved every bit of it. Wild Grain uses only clean ingredients like unbleached and non-GMO flour, and they utilize a slow sourdough fermentation process that just tastes better than the stuff you're gonna get in the grocery store. So if you're hungry already, for a limited time, you can get $30 off your first box, plus free croissants in every box when you go to wildgrain.com slash curb to start your subscription. You heard me. Free croissants in every box and $30 off your first box when you go to wildgrain.com slash curb. That's wildgrain.com slash curb, or you can use the promo code curb at checkout.
2: Um, so... Our case from Cash Lake Memorial is Ms. Vanessa Rodriguez, who is a new patient coming into established care with us. She's a 58-year-old with a long-standing history of smoking, averaging a pack per day since she was 24. She recently retired from the military, having served about 30 years. Her military career included several deployments to the Middle East. Since retirement, around four years ago, she's gained about 30 pounds or so, and her current BMI is 32. During review of systems questioning, she reluctantly admits that she continues to smoke and over the last few years has noticed increasing dyspnea, worse with exertion, which has kind of limited her ability to get back into an exercise routine. She also notes the development of a productive cough. So of course, this is all sounding potentially maybe like it could be a COPD, a new diagnosis. But before we carry on with the case and and continue to unravel things here, you know, over the last few years. Has the definition of COPD or understanding of COPD changed appreciably, specifically regarding things like biomarkers or pathophysiology, things like that?
3: Well, you know, before I answer your question, I think it's very important to emphasize, this is a lady on her fi- in her 50s. You know, most of the people won't suspect that she may have COPD. The image that we have is a COPD, it's a 78-year-old man that's coughing there, that keeps smoking, that has smoked all his life. Oh, well, that's not true. The newly diagnosed COPD, over 50% of the newly diagnosed patients are under the age of 60, and around 60% are females. So I think it's very important to emphasize that women and women in their 50s can have COPD. And this is an emergency because this lady, if she doesn't get diagnosed, what's going to happen is when she's 62, 63, her disease will be advanced to the point that she would have a very severe disease when I have the diagnosis. So, going back to your your question, that we suspect by history that may have COPD. The diagnosis has to be made with the spirometry. But one of the challenges that we had, and this is something we work on goal twenty twenty two, and keep your eyes open for twenty twenty three. But we are going to refine this, is because we discuss about early COPD, pre COPD. COPD in young patient, why is all this coming around? This is because we are understanding that COPD starts as a child. A kid who grows in an area, there's a lot of pollution, has a lot of infectious process, develop asthma at that point, when he or she turns into her 30s and 40s and starts smoking, they already has an underlying process that is going to make the develop. have the COPD. So it's early COPD. What is how much is early? Uh, At the end of the day, it doesn't matter. At the end of the day is you identify with the spirometry, you have a fixed ratio, less than 70, you do have a fifth obstruction, you have a disease.
1: Paul, this kind of reminds me, we talked about lipids a while back and they were talking about like primordial prevention of, uh, you know, of heart disease. You, you got to start from birth and uh, maybe protecting your lungs from pollution and infections and things like that from birth. Uh, easier said than done, depending on where, where you're born and, and grow up.
3: And the mother, you know, the mother is smoking. Uh, the mother exposed to environmental conditions, she is going to affect her offspring, her children. And her children are going to have the potential to have, have approach genetic abnormalities and have the potential to develop a disease. This may be a big
0: question, but can you talk to us about the importance of spirometry to make the diagnosis? I think we a, a common scenario is you have a patient with decades of tobacco use who has the right symptoms. Maybe they had a CT scan done for another reason that shows some emphysema. Um and so maybe you'll start this person presumptively on on a, a long-acting muscarinic or something. But I guess how how critical is it that we actually have the objective markers of COPD? So how how important are the how important is spirometry
3: to make the diagnosis? So let me turn the table to your question. How important is to get hemoglobin A1C to diagnose diabetes, or how important is to measure the blood pressure to make a diagnosis and make the treatment? I know spirometry is not the Fancy tool, uh, the uh, E-tool the e- that it has a stigma. Uh, you know, I understand. I'm with you. You know, when I get those reports, I have like a 50 numbers over there. You know, the truth, I have to confess to you, nobody knows what those 48 numbers mean. You are invited to come to the <laughs> National Conference, American Thoracic Society a Medical Chess physician. There are endless uh, sessions about FEV6 and, and FEF2575, what they mean. The truth is that we don't know what a lot of those numbers mean, but what we know, if you do an spirometry, and you, I tell my team, there is three things that you have to uh, pay attention. First, look at the demographics in the report. Be sure that the person is sitting in front of you. If he says the report, the male is a male, it's a female, it's a female, because those demographic factors are the ones to determine the predictors. So if you have a male sitting and it says female, the report, so the predictors are all off. So that by itself is wrong. So just look at the demographics. Then ask yourself, this is a good test. Look at this flow volume curve. It's a nice shape curve. It's a nice, smooth line. You had a good test. And then you look at the fixed ratio. The actual fixed ratio of feb one and FBC. is it less than 70 or more than 70. You know, that's the question that, that you have to answer. If there is less than 70, you have a fixed obstruction. You had COPD. You know, and that's the end of the story. Doesn't matter what the FEB1 is, because that will tell you more severity. And that less than 70, doesn't matter that it's 65 or it's 60 or it's 45. It's obstruction. There is fixed obstruction. Now, having said that, we recognize now there is a group of individuals and all these has been evolving as we have cohorts of smokers, and we had followed these individuals. There is a group called COPD Gene. Originally, it was 12,000 people. Let's bring them of the age of 45, 10-pack smoking. Be sure they are uh, all Hispanics and African-Americans because this is a genetic study. And the uh, NIH told us we don't have money to include Hispanics. Hispanics are too complicated. We almost have to double the sample size. So let's stay with Caucasians and African-Americans and say, fine. So it was a one time, bring everybody, take a picture, a shot of what's going on under their condition. But to our surprise, 50% of those individuals, everything was normal. And 20% have interstitial lung disease. So then we went back to the night and said, listen, we would like to follow them at five years. And now we have gone 10 years. So we're going 15 years. So we're getting a picture of what's going on. And you can have preferred ratio. That means that you are a smoker, your ratio, the spirometry was 75. It's not less than 70. Well, guess what? If that person continues to smoke, five years later, it's going to be either obstructed or it's going to become restricted, and it's going to develop interstitial lung disease. And 10 years later, it can be more severe if it continues to smoke. So. The bottom line is, yes, spirometry we need for the diagnosis. We know what we're dealing with, but it could have been people who falls on the size of that.
1: And when we order this spirometry as in primary care, we're ordering just spirometry. And do we need the pre and post bronchodilator to, to prove that it's a fixed obstruction?
3: No, actually you do the, the pre and post bronchodilator not to see if there is a fixed obstruction because it doesn't matter. We know that patients who have COPD, has fist obstruction, they can have some bronchodilator response today. Three months later, have no bronchodilator response. Six months later, they had 20% bronchodilator response. There is a lot of variability in the bronchodilator response. I think the importance to do, do it with post-bronchodilator is because by definition of COPD, is the severity is the FEV1 post-bronchodilator. So this is like uh, you want to see if your individual has high blood pressure, but what you want to understand is I want to see you, what's your blood pressure while you're already on medication. Oh, your blood pressure is still high already on medication. Damn, I need to I need to fine-tune. I need to adjust. That's the, the rationale to can do the post-bronchodilator uh, spirometry numbers to make a diagnosis. But it's also handy. You get a lot of uh, response. And if you add other uh, markers, in all my patients, what I do is I get IgE. I get CBC with differential. I don't know how it's in Philadelphia. Well, let me tell you, in San Antonio, if you order CBC in any primary care or any specialty practice, you know you don't get a differential. You get a computer, neutrophil, lymphocytes, monocytes. I had a lady who came to me, a little older than this patient, in her mid-60s. She's been in the emergency room. She has seen a bunch of people in town, even, even specialists. And I could not find an eosinophil count in the, this thick of her chart that was this thick. <laughs> uh, so I said, what am I supposed to do? Well, I send a CBC with differential. She got 45% eosinophils. So she really has, it's, her condition is, is an entity that is a completely different story, what we need to do. So this helps you not only to diagnose COPD by itself, but also to exclude other conditions. So you're pretty much excluding eosinophil group, you're excluding high IgE group, uh, you look at bronchodilator response. So uh, pretty much you're getting a much clearer picture of what you're dealing with.
1: So I want to try to recap just real quick, and then I'm gonna Cyrus. I'm gonna throw it to you in a second here. So we're getting spirometry. We're looking for this fixed ratio of less than zero point seven to make our diagnosis of COPD. And we're gonna look for the pre and post bronchodilator. What's a, what's helpful to look at is the post bronchodilator FEV one because if if that's severe, that's gonna that's a predictor of severity. And then you like to get an IgE level. And a CBC with differential, because you're looking to see eosinophil counts and does this person have high IgE levels? This is all going to be helpful to you as you're making your treatment plan.
3: This is very important. You know why? Because we do have all these biologicals. And this person may fall in a category of asthmatic, and these biologicals change their life. These biologicals are a life changer for the patient. The same that we saw with biologics and rheumatoid arthritis and all those conditions, biologicals in asthma and the particular phenotypes of patients are life changing. So that's what I want to know is to try to understand is anything of this that my patient may have.
2: And that sort of brings me to one thing I wanted to touch on before we continued the case was, you know, you mentioned Antonio about the PFTs and the ratio obviously less than 0.7 is concerning for obstruction, but we, you know, we do use that in asthma as well. And so I know that when our listeners hear this there may be some confusion. So from a pulmonary function test standpoint in your practice, how do you differentiate the two?
3: So certainly the bronchodilator response is going to help a lot to make the differentiation. But asthma has other features. Asthma is not only that the individual smoke. Asthma has atopy, Allergic reactions, environmental conditions. I love to ask my patients about strong odors, perfumes, cleaning products, and they will tell you, listen, I can I can walk to a room and somebody has a perfume, I have to walk out of that place, or I cannot I have to be changing whatever products I use for cleaning because the uh, the odors are so strong. So asthma has is other features that are part of the phenotype that the patient will present. And also the subtypes of patients, I will add about some of the phenotypes of COPD, this person is exacerbated. that seems to be in the hospital all the time. That's an individual that uh, in 2022, those patients don't exist anymore. The one you wish to see 10, 15 years ago that they will come in a hospital and come back and have this recurring bronchitis exacerbation. So the, the patient has that, you really have to ask yourself, what's going on here? Why is this patient having that? I look at medication compliance. You know, I have a, 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 one of my practices is in a fully funded a clinic everybody has insurance but you know those insurance copayments can go from 10 to 250 bucks and uh, and the patients don't take it uh, and i had patients that don't care to spend Three hundred bucks in a bottle of wine, but they will not spend three hundred bucks in a in an inhaler. I mean, that's that is a fact. Uh, so I always ask them. It's less
1: fun, Antonio. Yeah, Come on, I, I mean, a bottle, a, a nice bottle of wine, or or an inhaler. i I might go for the bottle of wine. As you have well.
3: to breathe. You know? <laughs> that's true. But, but uh, so I always remind myself to ask them about it, their medications. And there is another caveat that you have in respiratory. It's this not a pill? I mean, everybody can swallow a pill unless you choke, you know. But there is uh, and the pharmacokinetics and all that are well uh, defined. But in respiratory, we have twenty-eight different medications approved for COPD today, and come in ten different delivery systems. In some, you have to take a deep breath. In some, you have to take a slow breath. Some, you have to hold the breath. Some, you don't have to hold. so. The technique is something that I think is very important to emphasize, that you speak with your patient, you spend two minutes and ask, well, what inhaler do you use? How do you use? Do you have any questions? And you been use it because those variables are crucial before you make any changes or any interventions in your patients.
0: Any resources that you like for teaching those things? I feel like that is, especially in the primary care setting, that is, I think, sometimes a nuance that goes unappreciated or just we just don't know exactly what to do or what to tell the patient. Do you have any online resources that you refer patients to or any handouts that you, you go over to actually make sure that their, their technique is appropriate?
3: Uh, yes. Chess has a series of websites. There is a website it's called w- Wipe, Asthma Wipe, C-O-P-D. Those, those have a lot of graphics, techniques, reminder help to the patients to use the delivery devices.
1: And I believe National Jewish has a website as well that has some videos on inhalers. So we can can link to those in the show notes for the audience for sure. This episode is brought to you by Grammarly. You know, as I said, at the Curbsiders, we put out so much written content, whether it's for the website and our show notes, our emails that we're sending out every week. We really want to have written communication that's clear and mistake-free. So that's what Grammarly does for us. Grammarly is free to download, and it works everywhere you do, so every project gets finished a little quicker. And the free version of Grammarly is gonna give you spelling, grammar, and punctuation suggestions, plus a free tone detector to make sure that your message comes across the way you want it to. And if you step up to Grammarly Premium, what I love about it is it gives you clarity-focused sentence rewrites where it says, hey Watto, you said this in a way that doesn't make any sense. Maybe try saying it this way instead. I love that. So get more time back in your day with confidence in your work with Grammarly. Go to Grammarly.com slash Curb to sign up for a free account. And when you're ready to upgrade to Grammarly Premium, get 20% off for being our listener. That's 20% off at G-R-A-M-M-A-R-L-Y.com slash Curb. For interest of time, I think we should move on a little bit. And I know, Cyrus, we were going to give a little bit more of the case. Yeah. So why don't you go on in the case and and take us where you want to go next with this?
2: Absolutely. I know Antonio dropped a thousand knowledge bombs uh, (laughs) right up front. So so there may be a little bit of redundancy here, but we'll work through it, I'm sure. So after our discussion, uh, again, with Ms. Rodriguez, we start our exam. She's well-appearing. She's not in any distress. She appears comfortable. You do notice some centripetal obesity and some tissue redundancy around her neck, chin, and face. On cardiopulmonary exam, you don't notice any abnormal heart sounds or any evidence of elevated CVP or elevated JVP. You don't really appreciate any wheezing, but she does seem to have a prolonged expiratory time. And then in regards to vitals, she does have a resting oxygen saturation at 94% on air. So as we're putting it all together, um, we talked about some pearls from the workup in terms of uh, pulmonary function testing, uh, potentially CBC Ig- uh, with differential IgE. So so we've kind of got those things in the back of our mind. But in terms of the history of the exam, is there anything with Ms. Rodriguez that's particularly worrisome? And then also, if we could touch on, aside from COPD, what else might be in your differential as you're working
3: through this case? I mean, worrisome for me, the weight gain. Uh, it's worrisome for me, the description of the features of obesity. Uh, I would like to know if she has been treated for asthma. Has she gone to emergency rooms? Has she been in systemic, uh, steroids? The, certainly in the young person, she's relatively young, I will worry about vocal cord dysfunction. I will worry about upper airway abnormalities. Very often, kids look like asthma, sound like asthma, and patients go to emergency rooms or seek help. But they do; they receive steroids. And I remind me a lady that I had that she was around forties that she started having these asthma attacks, and it happened. It was after she had a C-section for a pregnancy that got a little complicated. She got intubated, and what the lady had is a is a subglottic stenosis secondary from the intubation. So uh, I will I will be I will worry about that and I will pay a lot of attention in her spirometry at the flow volume loop. I want to have that flow volume loop to be very nice and smooth. If the flow volume loop shows anything flattening, certainly having COPD with sleep apnea concomitant. In her physical exam, I will take a look at that mouth, um, her malapathy. If I can see her her uvula when she opens her mouth, I will be happy. If I don't see anything, oh, I say, you know, she probably has uh, some sleep apnea, and I will pursue that that path too. And I will now recognize that our chronic diseases, asthma, COPD, and sleep apnea, they live hand by hand, and uh, they can go. But I will be worried, uh, worried about her weight gain. Uh, why she has gained that weight and the distribution of the weight too. That's
1: that's interesting because with, with COPD, I'm used to thinking about weight uh, more from the other end where uh, oftentimes I'm seeing patients who are having trouble maintaining weight, probably when they get the pulmonary cachexia syndrome later, later in the course. But it sounds like early on, The, the patients, patients with weight gain, that may be part of the treatment. I know we did a prior episode on obesity, hypoventilation Mm -hmm. and talking about weight loss. And of course we've done episodes on sleep apnea as well. But you're, it sounds like just recognizing that maybe they're diagnosing and treating that is going to be something you're, you're keen into.
3: And, and this gain of weight, is she having respiratory symptoms? Has she been on systemic steroids? Has she got to emergency rooms? And is getting steroids and steroids for that? So uh, I will be very concerned about uh, why she gained that much weight. Got it. Okay.
2: Cyrus, what's next? Yeah. So I think, uh, you know, in this case, you, of course, identify that weight gain and and on exam, you're seeing it. And and she says, you know, it's, it really has just come on as she's had more and more difficulty exercising, which she feels is secondary to her shortness of breath. And so she's now living a more sedentary lifestyle. Whereas before when she was active duty military, she was doing PT regularly. And, and I guess, you know, maybe she didn't have as as significant dyspnea uh, as she does now. So you kind of examine that a little bit. She's not, she's not been on systemic steroids. She hasn't had a lot of ER visits. It just sounds like her symptoms have been smoldering for quite a while, and, and she just has been not able to address them until now. And so, so at this point, you know, you, we've talked about differential diagnosis and so we're going to send her to the PFT lab. As you said, we're going to get some pulmonary function tests. And it looks like she was able to get in actually same day. You got super lucky. And we have an FEV1 of 65% of predicted with an FEC of 98% predicted, result, uh, resulting in an FEV1 to FEC ratio of 0.62. So that's her true ratio, not the percent predicted. She then was given bronchodilator, and her FEV1 actually improved a little bit from 65 to 70%, and the ratio also improved slightly from 0.62 to 0.65. So she comes back to the PFT clinic to talk to you, and now she wants to know, what do we make of these results? And, and so, Antonia, how would you interpret them, and how would you discuss this with our patient?
3: So she clearly has a fixed obstruction, so I would tell her, I would very suspicious that she may have COPD. She has a, fix, a fixed obstruction. Um, and here, the moderate obstruction with the level of the FEV1 FEC. Uh, some of my concerns, especially had been in the military and she was deploying in the Middle East, uh, they, we've seen all these coming there that we don't fully understand. Certainly at the beginning, in the early 90s and two thousand, when people were exposed to the burn pits, uh, that was uh, a major concern. But there is other environmental conditions. So I would like to understand that she, she doesn't have some restriction component, was the LCO. So I will tell her I would recommend for her to do full PFts. I would like to see the whole panel. Uh, I mean the whole uh, spectrum of long volumes and diffusion capacity. Uh, if, uh, if imaging the uh, if I will do anything, I will go for a CT, not for as much for cancer. As uh, look, if there is uh, any other abnormality in her lungs, suspecting that she may end up having some mixed, restricted, obstructed process.
1: So this this patient, uh, th- this patient we're talking about. So we just to recap for the audience. So she's in her she's in her late fifties. She smoked for thirty four pack years. She she'd been having this weight gain. Is coming to us with dyspnea, and then Cyrus mentioned she was uh, exposed. She was in the military. And these burn pits, in case people haven't heard about them, essentially the military bases, it's not like there's trash removal necessarily. So they would just have these giant pits where they would burn waste and trash right next to the base. So people were uh, getting exposed to this. And we already talked about pollution on this episode. So that's, so she's got uh, multiple types of potential smoke exposure throughout her life and um and then the the CAT scan here, I guess she would probably qualify for the low dose CT as well with her right with her age. Um yeah. uh, but is there is there a difference in the way you would order would the low dose CT suffice for her or would you order the, the like the regular non non-con, uh, non contrast CT? Sure.
3: I, I think there is two things here. Uh I will order a regular non contrast C T, uh basically to understand her lung condition as a baseline. Uh, the Intergold committee and the USPSTF, uh, you know, now there is a strong recommendation to do the low dose CT uh, on the regular basis. And I know you have this, discussed that uh, here in the program. But the only word of caution about this: this is a, a, a trip that the patient has to be willing to take because the benefit of the low di- dose CT. If the patient is willing to do the full time of the follow-up, if the patient drops right. halfway through after three years, uh, doesn't want to continue doing, any benefit will be completely lost. So I think that's something that I, I emphasize to my patients before uh, they are willing to embark in the LDCT uh, screening for malignancy. And of course, a smoking cessation here will be the most uh, I would have to emphasize that she has to stop smoking.
1: Yeah, we were, I, Paul. You remember in chest in 2020, I think we talked about that a little bit and saying that the, you know, it's not enough to just get the first CT, but it's it seems like right. I, I'm not sure about you, Paul. Do do most of your patients get the follow-up CTs? You're a great doctor, so probably, but
0: it's I will I will say there there tends to be diminishing returns after they get that first sort of negative report a lot of the times, and so it requires a little bit more cell after you have one that is kind of reassuring, which is not the way that they're supposed to work. So I'm 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 picking up what you're putting down.
1: Okay, thank you for making that uh, distinction and and that's a great gr- great point that you got to tell the patients this is a a long game we have to keep checking that's why we're doing these these low dose cts every year um, because you have to be screened for that that whole period.
0: but I guess I just from a, a a practical standpoint, just so that I'm understanding because I feel like this comes up a lot like let's say this is a new patient so you would order first, a non-con CT just to get a sense of lung parenchyma and then follow up, say the following year for low dose CT. If you're doing lung cancer screening, is that in practicality what that would look like? I just want to make sure I'm understanding.
3: Yes. If she goes, if she's going to go to a lung cancer screen. Yes, sir. Okay. Very good. Thank you. Yeah. And it's not unusual in South Texas. A lot of people have nodules, a little stuff in the chest, uh, that we have to follow. She's a smoker. She's an active smoker. Uh, we have to follow those nodules, uh, and this is something we have to be very obsessive compulsive because I have seen after a year and a half, those nodules start changing and there are malignancies, uh, even in former smokers. So uh, uh, I learned many years ago, you cannot bet against cancer because you're going to lose. So you have to have to be on top of that. Yeah.
1: Can you talk about alpha-1 antitrypsin? That's that's something that I saw was in the guidelines, thinking about it. D- does, is that for everybody? Do you send that, or is it just for so- select patients?
3: Thank you for bringing this up, Matt. I think this is very, very important. This is the only hereditary disease, a condition that we know can be associated with uh, chronic lung disease. And what I do with the alpha-1 testing I get from the Alpha One Foundation, and you can get also to some of the companies who make the and therapy, you can get the diagnostic kits. The reason I do that is because you get the blood level and you get the phenotype. So you basically get name and last name together. Uh, if the blood levels are normal, but the phenotype is abnormal, so is somebody there in the family that other people has to be tested. If the blood level of the phenotypes is MM, so there is no abnormality, that's the end of the story for the patient. So here, you're not only thinking about the individual that you're talking to in front of you, that lady who's sitting in front of you, you're also thinking about this chronic lung disease that she has could be anybody else in her family who has the condition. And the Alpha 1 Foundation has done a terrific job in in uh, understanding, in partnership with their companies who make supplemental therapy. And we know now one fact, there is no age. You should test anybody, regardless of the age, for Alpha 1 to be sure that the Alpha 1 level and the phenotypes are normal. So it should be done on everybody who has any kind of chronic lung disease.
1: Are you running into cost issues with that? Like that would be my only concern with that plan would just be the um, making sure the patient doesn't get like a $2,000 bill for gene genetic testing.
3: I told you the trick. The trick is you call the COPD Foundation from your office. Uh, you can call to any of the... The COPD Foundation will put you in contact with the different companies who... Uh, the, the companies who make augmentation therapy they have developed reference labs around the country that work in partnership with the Alpha One Foundation. So basically, they send you to the office, the kids. Uh, some of the tests is a, a blood drop, like, a, like an check. that you put a little panel, you just sign, put some of the information, you mail it, and then you get a fax, there is the results. Uh, on some, there is a little swab, a mouth swab, you know, depending what company, but it's 100% free for the patient. And if there is anybody in the family that needs to be tested, you can do the same. It will be 100% free. And then the,
1: I guess the reason they do that is because if, if, they, if we find people that need treatment, then, the, then these companies also provide treatment. But uh...
3: Yes. Uh, and furthermore, uh, you have Alpha 1 deficiency or any kind of genetic abnormality, your insurance can go off the roof, and nobody may insurance you. Through the Alpha 1 Foundation, they have a system That can be anonymous. And if the person is deficient, can receive anonymous augmentation therapy. Like her insurance company never finds out that and never shows in the records. Wow.
1: And that that therapy is the just the replacement of the alpha one. Like the deficiency.
3: Yeah, that's augmentation therapy that can cost 70 to 80K a year.
1: Oh my gosh.
3: Yeah, that can be very expensive. And the insurance may may just About the companies and the Alpha One Foundation have developed systems to support patients. The Alpha One Foundation is unbelievable what they have done for this.
1: All right, okay, we will we will link to that for the audience. That's a hot tip there. Okay, Cyrus, where are we going to next?
2: So um, we've talked a lot about um, some of the workup elements. The one thing um, we hadn't mentioned, uh, I don't know, uh, Antonia, how do you feel about those Aeroallergen those Aeroallergen panels? Those um, like IgE. Uh, allergy screens that you can
3: get in south texas i do it because there's a lot of allergies here uh, it's uh, a different times of the year. But, you know, I was in Chicago a couple of weeks ago. Uh, I was crying and dying. <laughs> the allergies there. I think it's all over the country. <laughs> I don't think it, uh, we talk about it in the South or South Texas, but it seems to me it's all over the country. Uh, and I, I again, I do it because you wanted to better characterize your patient and you have a better understand what other alternatives to give. Uh, I would say something, you know, Monte Lucas. Montelucas is given Six fifty percent of patients with COPD out of Montelucas. There is not a single clinical trial to use Montelucas in COPD. Uh, so the assumption is because they have allergies, but the truth is we have no evidence. If you don't have uh, allergy or asthma, that it will work. And in COPD, there is no single clinical study.
1: What would you advise for our audience, uh, how, and how do you handle that in practice? Do you you think that's overuse of that medication? I mean, there's costs, there's potential side effects. I think it's
3: tremendously overused. I recommend my patients, yes, you have allergies, well, rotate your over-the-counter uh, loratidine, rotate your counter-allergic medications. I tell them, don't go and buy the 100-bottle kills because over time you may come resistant so go and buy the genetic loratidine the, the 12 pack 20 pack and when you run out of that buy the one that's next to different class just rotate those because that will make you uh okay. will work better for you and use it when you have a lot of symptoms
2: great okay hmm. that's right I've, I've never done that
3: because those don't have a black box warning yeah. right? <laughs> <laughs>
2: That's really interesting. I think um, that's 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 super helpful um, and very like clinically relevant. I think um, one other thing uh, I wanted to ask about was um, sort of the different tools, the MMRC or the CAT, um, those questionnaires that we can use with our patients. How often are you using those with patients, and how important is that when you're trying to assess their their sort of day to day limitations? Yeah.
3: So one of the big challenges with COPD is how do we develop objective tools to communicate with the patients? You know, with blood pressure, when the patient comes, your assistant takes the blood pressure outside. When you see the patient and they ask the patient, hey, Mr. Johnson, how are you doing? I'm doing wonderful. Are you taking your medication? Yes, yeah, doc, I'm taking all my pills and everything. But that blood pressure he was taking before you, you saw him, it was 280 over 200. So you know that is something is wrong there. Either he's not taking the medication, you really have to intervene. Now, how can we do that in COPD? In COPD, what we need is an objective tool. The MRC is the simple score. It's, a, it's a one question. It's a Disney score. How do you feel short of breath? What I do in my practice is when the patient's register. They handle to them in a piece of paper. In one side, the MRC. The other side, the CAT score. Eight questions. Uh, You just add it on. Anything above 10 is bad. Above 15 is is bad. Above 20 is really bad. It's very symptomatic. It's very sensitive also (laughs) to look at uh, interventions. So clinical studies have demonstrated that you can improve the CAT score from 20 to 10 with interventions. So you have here a win-win you have a baseline and then you use it later on when the patient comes and then you uh, you know what's happening with the, with his or her symptoms uh, furthermore, I don't know you guys, you guys are really efficient, but I always run half an hour, an hour late in my office, in my clinic. So when I walk <laughs> in at three o'clock with a 2 p.m. appointment, they give me this ugly look and say, Hey, that Mr. Johnson, when well, you did this paper, when you went outside, see, you already have gained all this. You gave me all this information. So it'll we'll, we'll help me to catch up with uh, my time delay that we, we are having. Um, so these it's objective tools, uh, I'm very strongly supported that we should be using on a regular basis.
1: I, I think this is uh, this is this is good. Uh, th- these are so the MMRC is the Modified Medical Research Council Dyspnea Scale, and that one's that, that Paul. I like this one. It's easy, right? This is just like is do they have dyspnea with strenuous exercise, or is it like breathlessness when they're just getting dressed? And that's like the extremes of the scale. And then the CAT score, which you said is. That's a, long, a little bit longer, but it, it, it can quantify. And it almost sounds like you track that over time like we do with uh, dep- scores for depression or anxiety where we're trying to figure out if we've got the person in remission. That sounds, that sounds pretty useful to do.
3: Yeah, exactly. that, And also the importance of the CAT score also assess what does it mean for the patient to be short of breath uh, in the sense of their social interactions, the activities, going out with friends. Uh, I'm so short of breath. I feel so bad. I don't go anywhere. So assess a little bit of depression. Assess social interaction. So not only takes a look at the pulmonary related symptoms. Take a look at what does that impact on on his or her life.
1: And and the gold guidelines, Cyrus. There's this two by two table, and I think we I think we might have already given one to Vanessa, our patient. But basically, the two by two table says like how many exacerbations have they had and, and how many hospitalizations. And then on the other axis is the, the MMRC or the CAT score. And that kind of puts them in these group A, B, C, or D of COPD. So we the FEV1 gives them part of that, right? And then there's this, this other based on exacerbations and hospitalizations and these scores we're talking about. And I think this is a perfect time to go into talking about, about treatment so do we have another piece of the case to bring us into that?
2: Absolutely. You read my mind. I think, uh, excellent, uh, dovetails really well. So, um, you know, in our sort of, um, discussion with Ms. Rodriguez, she tells us that unfortunately she's not able to keep up with her peers when they go on morning walks, um, often having to stop on flat terrain for a few moments just to catch her breath. And so that kind of does get to what, uh, Antonio, you were talking about in terms of things like social isolation and, and impacts on, uh, patient centered, um, you know, outcomes. And so, so she's certainly having some issues there. And, and so you put all that together with her FEV1 and you come up uh, using that table that Matt referenced, you come up with her being uh, coal, uh gold to b in terms of her designation. And so I think now we should, should talk about therapeutic options for her because she has COPD and she has symptoms. So uh, Antonio, can you sort of walk us through what is available what we should be doing for our patients, you know, how would you approach a patient like Ms.
3: Rodriguez given these findings? I think there is anything from this conversation that we have in the tech of message is COPD is a treatable disease. We can change the natural history of the disease with pharmacotherapy. And the treatment of COPD are long-acting bronchodilators. So uh, we—it's very easy for me to talk about this in 2022. We have 22 years, 23 years of development of these medications. So we know the efficacy, we know the safety, we know a separated, we know a combined. You know how do they work? So pretty much, uh, the whole stuff has we have we put together, we serve to us in a silver plate. Uh, because we don't have to worry about all this stuff. And furthermore, we know if we start bad interventions, we can change the the natural history of this disease. So this is a treatable disease. You can slow progression and decline in lung function with long-acting bronchodilators. You can improve symptoms with long-acting bronchodilators. You can decrease exacerbations with long-acting bronchodilators. You can even decrease mortality with long-acting bronchodilators. So the objective of the treatment is not to make her breathe better for two to four hours and be able to do what she wants to do. So short-acting bronchodilator should be used as a rescue medication only. And we're doing a good job. If the patient comes back to you and Ms. Rodriguez comes back to you and says, listen, you know, you gave me this inhaler. I haven't used it at all it's going to expire. Uh, you know, because I haven't used it. Then you say, we're doing a good job because she had not required her rescue. So, the bottom line is lone-acting bronchodilators. Most of the time, we start with the lone-active anticholinergics. In patients who are symptomatic, like Ms. Rodriguez, starting with a fixed combination of two lone-acting bronchodilators may not be a bad idea. A acting beta agonist with a lone-active anticholinergic. Given the medications combined in a single inhaler, actually, you don't get 1 plus 1 equals 2. You get 1 plus 1 equals 3. You get some um, uh, opening of the proximal airway with the anticholinergic that allows the beta2 agonists to penetrate further down in the distal airway. Uh, in patients who are more severe or hospitalized or have high eosinophils, like when you're going to use inhaled corticosteroids, we know that give them combined with the other bronchodilators, you get better efficacy. So the, the treatment on here is long-acting bronchodilators. Um uh, she's very symptomatic. I I will start with the fixed uh la lava lama combination.
1: Yeah, that, that brings up an interesting point about potentially uh, de-escalation. So um I, I guess maybe before we get to that though, just to, to define terms. So the short acting short acting agents, those would be ipratropium or albuterol. That's classically in the US anyway, the the two that I think of. And then the long acting muscarinic is teotropium, is the one that seems to be most available in the US. And then the long acting beta agonist, that's your salmeterol, formoterol, I guess for lanterol, yeah. Um th- those agents. And we
3: have also meclidilium, um, uh, glycoperidium mm-hmm. are available at the long-acting anticholinergics too.
1: Okay. Yeah, it gets, it, Paul, do you get confused by the inhalers
0: as well? Yeah, no, and I'm always grateful for the yearly formulary change where just everything becomes suddenly newly
3: expensive and you have to choose a different one. It's always a treat to learn some new trade names. And once you remember the medications of that, the insurance company is going to take care of you to change it, to switch it. So your patient yeah. is in a formulation That's A, right. they will get a letter, oh, next month you're not going to get A, you're going to get B. And then and six months later, you go back to A. So so I tell my patients, this is, this is life. You just have to navigate through that and be sure you get your medication.
1: Okay. So it sounds like we're pairing the intensity of initial therapy to the degree of the patient's symptoms. And so for a patient who's not doing well, we would potentially be starting them on a combination laba-lama. And uh, what about de-escalation? Is that something you think is a good idea? Or is this something like once you get it under control, you should just keep hammering away at the same intensity?
3: So with the fixed uh, long acting bronchodilators, there are no studies that look at the escalation. And the truth is, while you're aiming to maintain lung function and sustain over time, it can be achieved with having maximum bronchodilatation. And then also, I think it's important to remember there is a ceiling effect. We cannot improve our lung function forever. So it's going to be a level that they're going to go and just going to stay there. Uh, and, and they're going to stay there over time. In the gold uh, report last year, we have a section about lung function decline that uh, there is a couple of meta-analyses and putting some studies together that use tarloin acting bronchodilator sooner. I'm, I'm talking about FEV1 of 60%, 70%. What it's going to do, is going to preserve 60%, 70% for years and years and years to come. Uh, because, you know, the people who loses more lung function is not the patient who has FEV1 that is 40%. It's the patient who has FEV1 of 70%. The person who has more has more to lose. So they're going to lose more and much faster sooner. So if you don't start intervening now when it's 65 70%, when you start intervening when it's 40%, it's going to be two, three years down the road, you already lost a lot of ground. So that's the point to start the long acting bronchodilators. The sooner you want to start strong, that's going to result in improving the symptoms. And that's another challenge that you have in a patient like this. She's a relatively young lady. Once you can improve her quality of life, can she be able to do more? She's going to stay on the medication. So compliance is not going to be an issue because she's going to feel the difference taking the medication.
2: I think that's, that's awesome. That's really, um, those are, those are great, um, very clinically relevant pearls. There are kind of two things I wanted to ask about before we continue with the case. One is in regards to that mortality benefit that you mentioned, you know, when I was being trained, uh, even recently, um, the, the kind of party line, so to speak, is that the inhalers help symptoms, but there really isn't a mortality benefit. So I was wondering if you can speak to any of the uh, kind of emerging trends in data or or publications that suggest actually there there may be a mortality benefit that we're just capturing. And then the other thing, which is kind of unrelated, is just talking through some of the different delivery systems, because I know that that's something that a lot of our listeners are going to be interested in, whether you use a a mist inhaler or a standard HFA or something like that.
3: Yeah, Let let me address the delivery system first. Um, I think the challenge that we have with our insurance system is we don't get to choose the delivery system. The insurance company has chosen that for us. So I, I love the soft mist. I think it's all the delivery systems. The one that gives you better lung penetration is probably the soft mist. You have less precipitation in the mouth. But if it's not in the patient's formulary, you know, it's not going to work. So wh- what we need to do is we need to work with what we have. For example, if the insurance company uses the HFA, I will use a chamber, a spacer. The spacer will allow the medication to be able to uh, penetrate better into the lungs. If their insurance, what they approve for the patient is powder medications, I tell them to take the medications right before their meals. So, right before breakfast, take the medication, eat breakfast, then rinse their mouth that will significantly decrease uh, two things. One is the sensation of a chalk or powder in the back of their throat. And second, it will decrease the possibility of having a candida infection. I think with each of the delivery systems, we have to adapt. And just remind our audience that we do have nebulized medications now lone acting bronchodilators available in a nebulized formulation. So we have lone acting beta-agonists, lone acting anticholinergics, inhaled corticosteroids, nebulized. The new nebulizer machine is not like my grandmother had. Uh, is these machines first are uh, much more uh, uh, cheaper. Most of the insurance will pay for it, nice, portable, small, to get three to five minutes nebulization, and you can use long-acting bronchodilators. So this is an alternative for many of our patients that we can mimic the inhaled the, the medications in a nebulized uh, uh, form.
1: And that's probably good. I'm sure that's good for people who can't do the breath hold and... People who can't coordinate or right. can't do the breath hold uh, have, aren't having success with the regular inhalers.
3: No. Yeah. Or, or to okay. use the nebulae. So, the second question is mortality. We know what well, we know for a fact the only intervention decreases mortality in COPD is supplemental oxygen if you are hypoxic. These studies, when they were done in the 60s and 70s, today there's not going to be a single IRB that will approve the study uh, because, you know, the truth, people were dying. Uh, but it clearly shows if you are hypoxic at night, you need supplemental oxygen. Having said that, uh, we've been intrigued for many years that the bronchodilators may have some effect in mortality. We just saw in the last three years two large uh, uh, in different studies that are with a fixed triple therapy combination. And this comes down to who are the patients who were enrolled in the clinical studies, who are the ones who were benefit from the potential benefit in mortality with these uh, formulations. So these were patients who had exacerbation, who were hospitalized or had frequent exacerbations, who have moderate COPD, and in these patients, Give them the triple therapy, not only decrease exacerbations, but also there is a signal that is a reduction in mortality and probably has to do with reduction of the risk of cardiovascular mortality. That's as far as we go today. We're not going to see an FDA-level approval because there's still a lot of holes. Still, we need to have randomized studies. We need to better understand uh, why there is a cardiovascular protection. We need to be sure that the, the cardiovascular treatment in all the groups were similar. It's a lot of stuff that we need to see. But over and over, we uh, continue to see have some data, which says, yes, we may be doing more uh, that, not, that improve lung function, quality of life. We may be impacting mortality.
1: Antonio, you reminded me mentioning mentioning the triple therapy. There, you reminded me. So, the inhaled corticosteroid, when I was when I was coming up, uh, Paul, we used to put everyone on inhaled corticosteroids in a long acting beta <laughs> agonist, right?
0: Right. But but we would also do this simultaneously while blasting them with systemic steroids. So like maybe like we're tickling their lungs a little bit of steroids and then they're getting like these whopping doses of methyl. Yeah. Sorry, but yes. But yes, Matt, that is correct.
1: And and probably fluoroquinolones as well. But uh we're oh, we're sure. we're not talking exacerbations here. I just mean for for chronic COPD treatment, the inhaled corticosteroid, uh adding that component on. It seems like that's now sort of been pushed towards the back. And then this new guideline, I thought it was interesting. It said if the absolute eosinophil count is greater than 100, consider inhaled corticosteroid. Or if the eosinophil count's greater than 300, you know, it might be a good choice for the patient. Can you talk a little bit about that? Because like, I know there's increased risk pneumonia with it, and maybe that's why.
3: You know, everything we do in life, we pay a price we make our patients pay a price. So my patients come and tell me, you give me this medication, but in the TV says this medication can increase the risk of pneumonia. And I say, yes, I give you this medication because you have high eosinophils, you had an exacerbation, you were hospitalized with exacerbation, and you have three times last year that need to have antibiotics and, and uh, systemic steroids so you exacerbate with that. So and those individuals having inhaled corticosteroids, the risk uh, benefit and the reduction in exacerbation is much higher than the risk of developed pneumonia, osteoporosis, uh, all the other side effects of corticosteroids. Having said that, uh, in goal, we talk about that this intervention should be a two-way street. Uh, what I mean is, yes, we added. We added three years ago you were having these exacerbations. Uh, of, well, you had your ocidophils you know, celebrated, You don't have that anymore. Uh, do you need to continue to be in that? And there are eight clinical studies that have shown that that individual, you de-escalate, you remove removing health steroids, and you leave the patient, mm-hmm. uh, the person, with the fixed lava-lama combination. The efficacy in lung function and the efficacy in the quality of life and exacerbation prevention is going to be preserved. So you're going to de-escalate the inhaled health you de-escalate to the fixed lava-lama combination. But if a person has high eosinophils, has got high eosinophils, that person will have to stay, and they will fall into this group asthma-COPD overlap.
1: And these are blood eosinophils that we're talking yes, about sir. for the audience and uh, it's figure 3.1 in the gold guidelines, has a nice uh, kind of a stoplight format. It's like green, yellow, and red. And it tells you, you know, reminds you who should be potentially prescribed, may benefit from ICS treatment. And uh, so I found that really helpful and, and something that was a new concept for me. Um, I know we're, we're probably towards the end uh, end of the things here, uh, as far as the interview goes, because it's getting late. We want to be respectful of your time.
2: So Antonio, we've talked about medications that we can use with Ms. Rodriguez, but uh, you know, while we were off air in timeout, um, we'd kind of talked about this COPD tripod, if you will, and really the pharmaco, uh, the pharmac, the pharmacologics are just one leg of that tripod. Um, the other two legs being pulmonary rehabilitation um, and smoking cessation. So, do you think you could talk to us and, and our audience in, uh, about how you approach? these topics and, and the importance of these topics with our patients.
3: Yes. So what I approach is I would love my patients to go to pulmonary rehab That's an endangered species in San Antonio. There is two sides in the whole city. So I tell my patients, listen, I need you to move. I need you to get out of the house. I need you to walk to the mailbox. I need you one day to do it for five minutes, maybe next week to do 15 minutes. Then you may go to half an hour. You will slowly prolong you will build up. Furthermore, leave your phone at home, disconnect from the world. This is your time for you to do something for yourself. So I think rehab or some form of exercise is very important. The second area that I think is very important is smoking cessation. And smoking cessation is being a place that has been underestimated because, ah. Oh, you know, I know he's, he smoked, she smoked. Uh, I had a gentleman who had Mr. Ames in his pocket all the time. I said, Mr. J, you have to stop. We need to get rid of your Ames. And, and one day he came without Ams. I said, you know, Doc, I had a heart attack and I thought this stuff was going to kill me. Uh, I'm 100% convinced that every single person who continues to smoke, they want to stop. They understand they have to do it. But this is probably one of the most horrible addictions. My patients ask me, well, I stopped smoking, should I go on electronic cigarettes? I said, no, don't do that. Don't do those electronic cigarettes. Don't do that stuff. We don't know how bad they can be. But we know how bad at, at smoking. Stay with that. Try to work into, into stopping and to cut. And now, people tell you, oh, I had a friend, my uncle smoked when he was 90 years of age. Yes, I had a friend who quit smoking but he turned 100. He buried three wives of all age. He said, oh, Mary, she was an old age. The reason she died. The guy died of 103. The gentleman used to do square dancing. He fell, broke his hip, and died of a PE. Uh, but he had good genes. And what we don't know is who had good genes and bad genes. So I told my patients, I don't know you have good genes to be able to smoke until you be 100 years old. So that's why you must stop smoking.
1: Antonio, and we've done smoking cessation shows, uh, which we can link to uh, in the episode description in the show notes for this one. So our audience is definitely familiar with a lot of great tactics for smoking cessation. Talked about like endless varenicline, right, Paul? That's one of Mm -hmm. my favorites. Uh
0: (laughs) Yep. In perpetuity. Uh,
1: So let's, what about, so the pulmonary rehab, I love how you said you're sort of like, because not everyone can get into it, you're just encouraging them to have this graded exercise where they're gradually increasing the amount that they're doing. That's, that's one of the things. I wasn't sure exactly what if you get to a form, formal pulmonary rehab, is there a big education component? Are they teaching people about inhalers there as well and exercising them? or is it mainly just focused on the exercise? I
3: think the most important uh, aspect of having going to a pulmonary rehab, and that's the reason I'd really love my patients to go because they're sitting next to another person who's dealing with life on the same circumstances. I can tell patients about, oh, do this, do that. But when they sit there, they talk to people who that's their day-to-day activities. It's huge. And patients actually learn some tricks to deal with life. So I think that's what is more important than rehab. Of course, they teach them how to take the inhalers. They train them. Train them to have to use their medications. Uh, they train them to have to gain more strength. All that is a plus plus plus. But the most important is the daily interaction with people who has this, and the other people who have the same condition that they have.
1: I think we should we should start to wrap up our case here. I know we did want to talk a little bit more. Um, well, Cyrus, I know you wanted to talk about oxygen and non-invasive ventilation. So, how does that factor in for our patient, Vanessa? Is she headed towards either of those things? Maybe we'd have to roll the clock forward if uh, if she doesn't if she doesn't stop smoking. But tell tell us how you want to wrap this up.
2: Yeah, so um, I think for Vanessa, you know, we probably shouldn't lose sight of two factors. One is that. She does have um, obesity and she has some kind of uh, evidence of maybe upper airway obstruction. Um, and then, of course, she had that resting oxygen saturation at 94%. So when you see those two things in regards to oxygen therapy and then in regards to positive pressure, um, uh, pap therapy, you know, uh, how do you tackle those, Antonio?
3: I think she needs his sleep study. She needs a sleep study. Uh, She's. Is- uh, you know, I've been doing a lot of portable sleep studies at home. Uh, the pandemic has allowed us to do that. It's, uh, it preserves the patient's privacy. We get the information that we need. And uh, some patients that absolutely don't want to do that, I will use uh, continuous nocturnal oxygen monitoring. You know, this is pretty much non-invasive, and you can get huge amount of information. So I want to understand if she's hypoxic during the night, but very likely she's going to have obstruction So what we would like to do is to uh, offer her the possibility of a CPAP, a dental device, any ways to try to improve her airway obstruction because she's pretty young. Uh, We need to buy her 20, 30 years of good quality of life uh, unless she's going to start having uh, pulmonary hypertension and other complications.
2: I think that's a great point. And, um, you know, I, I like to see my patients with a SAT of 100%. So should I just slap oxygen on this patient out the door? Or, you know, what, what are we doing with that uh, SAT of 94% at rest?
3: Well, it's not, Yeah, uh, I mean, it, it, we know that even that she will desaturate on exertion and drops to the upper 80, supplemental oxygen is not going to impact her life. It's not going to do anything. I think what we need to go is need to go to the bottom to understand why is she hypoxic? And what happens when she does? And as she may not be hypoxic during the day, but she's hypoxic at night.
1: Yeah. The, the So when you get the home sleep test, because that seems to be in the past couple of years. it I, Paul, is this reverted for you too? Or are most patients just defaulting to home sleep tests now?
0: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah.
1: And, and so you get these reports back that it gives you the... At, apnea, hypopnea index, and then it also gives you the ODI, the oxygen desaturation index, and it tells you how much time they spent below 90% in various. So what what are you looking at there? Or what's significant when you're reading those reports? Like what's a significant amount of hypoxia?
3: Well, basically, if uh, the amount of time that they stay with oxygen saturation below uh, 90%, so if the person has a little bit of a couple of minutes here, a couple, couple of seconds there, a little dips, you know, that's probably not relevant. But if the person has 30 percent of her time and this lady of her time, at least below 88 percent, she has severe hypoxemia. And, and uh, basically what you want to do is you want to put some money in the bank to start treating her and to prevent pulmonary hypertension, to prevent core pulmonale and a very uh, significant progression of her condition.
1: Yeah. And then for for these people, are you using, are you recommending like non-invasive ventilation CPAP or, because if they have just, the AHI that's elevated, you're going to treat with CPAP, right? Right. But if they have the AHI that's elevated and 30% of their time where they're below 88%, you're also giving them oxygen with that or just because couldn't the CPAP as well just overcome it? I guess you wouldn't know without an in-lab
3: study. You know, the, the, uh, those patients, I did you do a CPAP titration if the patient do not want to do it for X or Y reason? What I do is I, I give them the supplemental oxygen, and then later on, after a couple of months, I measure their nocturnal oxygen monitoring with and without oxygen. Mm. So in that way I can get one night with oxygen, one night without oxygen, so I can I better understand what's going on. And I can show the patient, this is what's happening, that's the reason you should do this or you should not do this.
1: Right, so they'd still wear the CPAP, but just with or without yes, oxygen, sir. you'd repeat no. the test, and then you. Okay, no. that
2: makes sense. I think that's a good point too, because I think, like, uh, really, if they have obstruction and you have them on PAP therapy and their AHI is ablated, they shouldn't need supplemental no. oxygen unless there is a contribute another contributing factor that you're missing. And so I think that that approaching it that way is the same way I approach it, where I'll I'll test my PAP therapy and make sure that it's working with oxygen desaturation studies on pap. And if they're still desaturating, that either means my pap is not effective, or it means that maybe this is a person that has a uh, heart failure as well. And so I have to be, you know, more aggressive with their diuretics. Um, and I think that's, I think those are, those are important points to remember. I think the other thing that I was trying to get out of the case is you know, if someone's got a resting saturation 93 94%, and you're giving them a diagnosis of COPD, is this someone who should be getting, uh, you know, a desaturation, a walking desaturation study, an exertional test of some sort? Uh, is that what you would do with someone like this, Antonio?
3: Yeah, I, I, I do six-minute walks on those patients. Uh, let me tell you, my, uh, our techniques of the six-minute walk, and I made all the exclusion that you, have, you should me do a six-minute walk. There's been a lot of obsessive and into the pulmonary, especially in the COPD community, it's been very obsessive how the six-minute walk, six-minute walk has to be done, the hallway, the noise. You know, I, the truth is that doesn't matter. We use a hallway, uh, we use that for our patients with ILD, for our patients with pulmonary hypertension, or our COPD. You would the you the you need, you have a problem. So I, I do six minute walks and this is something we do routinely in our, in our practice and also helps for the patients to realize, you know, what's the severity of his or her condition. I know that my sats really dropped. I got very short of breath. I want to be able to do this much. As, and also, you get some idea what how cardiac function are uh, responding.
1: Be, before we leave this discussion about uh, non-invasive ventilation, um, I, Cyrus, I think you wanted to make one point about the the BiPAP for people who are hypercapnic. I mean, oftentimes the patients with, are patients with COT, COPD have bicarb, you know, resting bicarb in the fifties or mid fifties, high fifties. Um, do those patients need to be on BiPAP, I guess would be the question. And is there any benefit to to reversing that?
3: Yes, uh, I think in those patients, uh, BiPAP ventilators, the AVAPs, so we can we can mimic and make the machine to be at more friendly uh, for our patients to use. And once the patient's in the ventilator is working, the AVAPs, and you can titrate the pressures uh, appropriately, The patients love it, and they tell you, "I can sleep very well. I feel rested, and I I can see a significant change in my life."
1: And those are those are auto titrating BIPAPS similar to an auto titrating CPAP, and those tend to be more comfortable. It sounds like for the patient because.
3: And also remember the other important issue I tell my patients is very often when you get any form of non invasive ventilation CPAP BIPAP. you go to a place, they tell you, this is your machine, this is your mask, go home. And I tell them, no, 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 it doesn't work that way. You go over there and you tell them, I want to see all the devices. They make pink uh, devices uh, because women's face are different, smaller than men. So be sure they give you a pink one if you are a lady. And finally, only the nose, the nose and the mouth, underneath the nose, underneath the nose and the mouth. I mean, we had so many alternatives. Uh, because at the end of the day, what we would like is to be a device that the the individual would say, "I love this, I need to sleep with this." So that's the most important part.
1: Well, I think we could talk for hours. We've already decided uh, in our timeout that we probably need to do a follow-up episode uh, with the hospital medicine crew on acute exacerbations of COPD, but this has been this has been just fantastic. So at this point, Antonio, I'd like to thank you for all your time, and uh, can you give us uh, a couple take-home points? Maybe two or three take-home points that you really want the audience to remember from what we talked about tonight.
3: Well, thank you, Matt. thank you again for our invitation. So, my take-home points is one: make a diagnosis. Not everything who smoke, nobody who smokes develop obstruction. No, everything who cough is COPD. So make a diagnosis, do a spirometry, be sure that the FEV1, FVC ratio is less than 70, that you have a, a, a lady in front of you that it has COPD, has fixed obstruction. Second, the phase of COPD has changed. We had to suspect COPD in early in, uh, people, patients less than 60 years of age and women more than men. My third point, this is a treatable disease. You can make a difference in using long-acting bronchodilators. Try to adjust the delivery device to be the one the patient is able to use, but the treatment is long-acting bronchodilators for this condition.
0: This has been another episode of The Curbsiders, bringing you a little knowledge food for your brain hole. Yummy! Great. Get your show notes at Curbsiders.com. And while you're there, sign up for our mailing list to get our weekly show notes in your inbox. Plus, twice each month, you'll get our new Curbsiders Digest recapping the latest practice-changing articles, guidelines, and news in internal medicine.
1: We're committed to high-value practice-changing knowledge. And to do that, we want your feedback. So please subscribe, rate, and review the show on Apple Podcasts or on Spotify. You can also send an email to Curbsiders at gmail.com. A reminder that this and most episodes are available for free CME credit through VCU Health at curbsiders.vcuhealth.org. A special thanks to our writer and producer for this episode, Dr. Cyrus Askin and Dr. Deb Gorth. And to our whole team, The Curbsiders is produced and edited by the team at PodPaste. Elizabeth Proto runs our social media and Stuart Brigham composed our theme music. And Paul... With all that, until next time, I've been Dr. Matthew Frank Watto.
0: And I've been Dr. Cyrus Askin. I remain, Dr. Paul Nelson-Williams, thank you and goodbye.